you've been with us the past several weeks, we have been wading through some difficult waters in Scripture as we go through Joshua. And I consider stepping out of Joshua for our Thanksgiving Sunday, but actually it's worked out that this passage is pretty fitting for Thanksgiving Sunday. We've come through passages where we've studied God's wrath. We've come through passages where we've studied that uh, refining blowtorch that he puts to his people sometimes to purge the sin out of us. This Sunday, we're going to observe a very special moment between God and his people. We're going to be spectators on a historical event this Sunday. Uh, What we'll read this morning is not prescriptive, it's descriptive, meaning that this is not going to prescribe action items for us to do necessarily. It's going to describe a moment between God and his people. It's more like a portrait that we're going to be gazing at this Sunday, and uh, in that portrait we hope to get to know God better. And along the way, uh, maybe it will inspire us in our relationship with him and encourage our own Worship to him, and maybe some ideas will bubble up that might make our holiday season a little bit more meaningful and purposeful, including Thanksgiving this week. So, we're going to read it. It's Joshua chapter 8, beginning at verse 30, through the end of that chapter, five verses. Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. We're going to read it, and then we're just going to go through and kind of fill in the color and some detail to it, just really take in. This moment between God and His people. Now we will read the entire uh, five verses and I'd like to do something we haven't done in some time. And if you would, I'd like for you to stand as we show honor to God in the reading of His Word. Reading from Joshua chapter 8 starting at verse 30. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, on which no man had wielded an iron tool. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. He wrote there on those stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. All Israel with their elders and officers and their judges, were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Then afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, According to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of what Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Let's respond to God in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word, that we have it, we can read it, that we can get to know you and hear your voice through it. And I pray that. All of that would happen this morning. And I cry out to you for your grace to please help me communicate it clearly. And I cry out to you for your grace on all of us to help us to see you clearly through it. And to come to know you and love you a little bit more deeply this morning. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Thank you. This passage comes now probably many months into the conquest. I'm not really sure how much time has passed between when they first crossed the Jordan River and now. But they've left two cities utterly destroyed in their wake. They've walked through a flooded river. They've tasted the fruit of the promised land. They've watched the walls of Jericho crumble to the ground. They've seen God's mercy toward Rahab the harlot and her family. The men of war have killed thousands of people. God's instrument carving the cancer of sin out of the land. They've experienced defeat. They very recently had gone through God's refining fire. Had to kill some of their own people to purge the sin from the nation of Israel. And they've traveled by foot many, many, many miles into the promised land. And now our passage starts off with the word then. All of this, then, here we are. Joshua builds an altar on Mount Ebal. This mountain, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, they are right beside each other. They're two slopes almost meet. They're two bordering slopes. They're right beside each other. It seems as though Joshua built his altar somewhere on the slope of that mountain there near the Gerizim side. It says, just as Moses commanded. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. We won't flip there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 27, the first eight verses or so, is Moses explaining exactly how God wants his people to approach him once they've entered the promised land. It's very detailed. This is exactly what God would have you do to approach him and worship him once you enter the promised land. He told me even what mountain to do it on. And uh, Joshua followed these clear instructions on how to approach God. So we're going to look at some of the aspects of how God wanted his people to approach him in this moment in history. Joshua built an altar to the Lord, just as Moses commanded the sons of Israel, as it's written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones. On which no man had wielded an iron tool. They were to gather stones, just natural, unshaped, jagged, imperfect stones. And they were to use those to build the altar. They were not to chisel them, they were not to sculpt them, they were not to soften the the jagged edges at all. They were to take these stones, build an altar, not use any tools on them. Uncut, natural stones. Now why do you suppose God specified that? Don't mess with the stones, just use uncut stones. Thankfully, the Bible tells us exactly why. You don't have to flip here, it's just one verse. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 25. Can anybody remember what is in Exodus chapter 20? The Ten Commandments. In 20, verse 25, after the, Moses explains the Ten Commandments, he says, If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it out of cut stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. In this passage, God had told the people that 
when they build an altar to use earth or dirt or stone, but not to use a tool on it. Because if they would, if they did, it says they would profane it, defile it, your your, um, translation may say, or pollute it. So dirty, jagged stones were acceptable to build the altar. Cleaned up, chiseled up, shaped stones were unacceptable. Not just unacceptable, profane. Now I want to figure out why. It doesn't clearly explain why, but I think we can draw some, some ideas out here. It comes shortly after the Ten Commandments. One of those commandments is, don't make any graven images. So maybe God knew that once they started chiseling these stones, it would only be a matter of time before they basically became graven images. Before they started worshiping the stones. It seems like man is perpetually tempted to worship what he can make with his hands. And to pour his energy into how he can make something look Maybe God didn't want them to, to sculpt the stones because he knew his people would be so worship, so tempted to worship the stones that they would forget to worship God. They would start to worship their own workmanship. Pride would start to enter the picture because they were shaping their stones well. And whenever there's a bit of self-worship involved, there can be no God-worship. You can't, I can't worship God and Matt Broadway at the same time. So God says, no shaping, just only uncut stones for my altar. Maybe he knew that the people would start to pour so much energy into building these fantastic, wonderful, beautiful altars. That they would just totally forget what the altars were for in the first place. I don't think that's far-fetched looking back at the history of God's people. And soon, instead of sacrificing... They would just sort of bask in the glow of their stones that they carved. And it would become an altar to themselves, not an altar to God. He didn't want them focused on the altar. He didn't want Joshua and the Israelites there in the promised land working, focused on chiseling stone. He wanted them to build this altar so that they could look beyond the stone and beyond the altar to God. Our son, Elias, some of you may know, has an egg allergy. And we figured this out at an early age. If your child ever has an allergic reaction to a food, it can be pretty terrifying. I I wasn't there, but I'm pretty sure his face just sort of swelled up and blotches. And you never know. His face is swelling. His throat swelling, too. This was before we had an EpiPen, so it was pretty traumatic. So we took him for his allergy testing. Sure enough, allergic to egg, like egg whites to be specific. So now we have our EpiPen, and we have not let him get near egg or anything that has egg in it, because that too can cause a reaction. So that means we have to be very careful with what he eats, including he has never had a bite of birthday cake. I know. People are going to start crying. He's going to become really emotional. But the doctor told us recently that sometimes people with an egg allergy are not allergic 
to egg that has been thoroughly baked or cooked. And you can tell if you take a little bit of something that has egg in it and rub it on their skin, it'll have a reaction. And if it doesn't have a reaction, it's probably okay for them to eat egg that's been baked into something. So that was an exciting possibility. So Meredith made some muffins and we rubbed it on it and nothing <laughs> happened. Just a little bit. We didn't like, use it like soap in the bathtub or anything. Nothing happened. So we gave them a little bit to eat and nothing happened. And then later we gave him a whole muffin and nothing happened. And then later he was, we allowed him to gorge himself on muffins to his heart's desire and nothing happened. So that means that his next birthday in August, we can give him a birthday cake. Finally. Now envision it's, it's August, it's, his birthday's coming up, and Meredith and I are excited, and we get to work, we research, we figure out how to make an amazing cake. He loves Lightning McQueen from the movie Cars, so we make this awesome cake in the shape of Lightning McQueen. It has a real engine in it. He can actually drive his own cake. <laughs> we spend weeks, months crafting this cake. It's ready. It's the day of his birthday. We take all the precautions to carry this cake to where we're going to have his birthday party. It's in a specially made box. I probably have to get David to help me with the box. He makes it. It's beautiful. The cake cannot be hurt. We put it in our van. We drive it to the place. We bring it out. And we, we take the protection off of it. There it is. We put the candles in it. We light them. And we start to sing happy birthday. And we realize we've left Elias at the house. We've been so focused on the cake that we forgot the birthday boy. <laughs> this illustration does have a point. I think God knew that his people would become so focused on the stones of the altar that they forgot the God. It's almost like a holiday season called Christmas that we get so absorbed in the decorating and the cooking and the planning and the scheduling and the shopping and the wrapping. And we forget Christ. We forget God. Yeah. Or it's like a church full of well-dressed people in a well-built building going through a well-orchestrated service. Hearing a well-planned sermon. Every once in a while that happens. <laughs> and we forget about simple devotion to God. It's like one of those slapstick comedies. You guys will know what I'm talking about, I think. Maybe Abbott Costello or something where the bad guys are trying to get the good guy. And they're all wrestling around. And, and Costello slips out and they don't realize it. And they're all just wrestling each other. We get so frantic wrestling around our stuff that God slips out we don't even know it and churches spend years walking around looking at their altar of carved stones and don't even know that God has left the scene a long time ago and individuals can spend years doing that and God does not want that for his people it seems like this might be what he was concerned about now we're not told to build an altar out of stones that's why I said this is historical this is describing a real event in history. It's not prescribing action steps for us. But I think we can see something about God here. When he gave these specific instructions to Moses about how he wanted his people to approach him, 
once they entered the land, one thing that shines through clearly is that he wanted them to do so in, as one author put it, unadorned simplicity. I like that phrase, unadorned simplicity. Some churches call this idea the simple means of grace. Things like prayer, the ministry of the word, Christian, true Christian fellowship that actually encourages us in our Christian walk. The Lord's Supper and baptism, these simple means of grace that God has given us. These simple aspects of our Christian walk that so quickly we just take for granted. And we build complication around it. To such an extent that, that those things shrivel and die, we don't even know it. And it's just an empty shell of some religion without any true heart, love, and passion for God. In other words, God just doesn't want us to get distracted. He doesn't want his people to get distracted. He wants us to simply love him. So that when we pray, we shouldn't pray things like, My glorious heavenly Father, thou art majestic in thy splendor and unfathomable gloriosity. And I beseech thee, may your sovereign will be manifest in our destiny among the mortal flesh of this earth. As it most certainly is in the highest stratospheres of heaven and everywhere that doth lie betwixt hitherto, therefore, (laughs) etc. and all. That's how the Pharisees stood up and prayed. And Jesus said, don't do like that. Come to the Father simply. A few weeks ago, we had the youth over to our house for movie night. I think we had six guys in there. And we were going to watch the movie Up. And I let Elias stay up until 10.30 to finish this movie. And he loves, he calls them his boys. The boys, (laughs) the guys in the youth. He loves them because they're a terrible influence on him. And they let him go crazy and hit them with fake swords. And he saw them there. He didn't know they were coming. I mean, we had told him, but he didn't really get that they were coming. And he came around the corner in his pajamas and saw them. And my son is strange. He's wonderfully strange. His first reaction isn't just like, hey, there they are. It's to stand there and start beatboxing and dance around. <laughs> I'm not going to start to imitate the dance. <laughs> but they thought it was so funny that after the movie, they started egging them on. And they started beatboxing too. And I have video on Facebook to prove that Kevin Dodd and two other youth that aren't here this morning were dancing around the living room with Elias doing this crazy tribal rain dance. <laughs> and he loved it. He loved it. And they went home that night, we put Elias in the bed, and we're going through our routine that includes prayer, and uh, Meredith was actually in there with them. She told me about it. She, we pray, and then we say, and what else? Like, we thank God for some things, and we say, and what else? And Elias will finish it up. And we, she prayed the typical things, and, you know, thank you, God, for Mommy and Daddy and our home and Lillian, and um, thank you most of all for Jesus, and what else? And he said, thank you for my boys, thank you for my song. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <laughs> Unadorned, simple prayer. That's genuine. That's what God wants. Don't get distracted 
by stuff. Don't get distracted by dress codes. Just simply worship. I heard a song recently, and it was a good song. It was singing about three different teenagers that were struggling to find God for three different reasons. One of which was a guy who he'd heard a church, but all his friends went wearing three-piece suits, and he couldn't afford one, so he figured it wasn't for him. I don't want to be like that. I'm fine with wearing a suit to worship. Obviously, I've worn one every Sunday since I've been here. But, and this may cause me not to get ordained, I don't know. I'm fine with wearing jeans too. Now, I'll tell you what I mean. There was one Sunday, it was, it was pretty cold, and Meredith had gotten me a sweater vest. I love sweater, sweaters and sweater vests, which I know is weird. The youth knows this well. So I wore it and my suit jacket, but by the time I was at church, it was way too hot to wear both. And so people say, well, just wear your sweater, you know, just don't wear the suit jacket. I didn't do that, though. I took the sweater off. I wore the suit jacket. And do you want to know why? And do you want to know why I wear a suit every Sunday? It's not because I believe this to be the holy outfit. It's because I believe me wearing a suit is less distracting for you, and you can focus on God. I think at Doolin's Grove, that is the case. Now, if God had put me in some other atmosphere, say around young people or poor people who don't have suits... It's foreign to their whole culture. They would never wear a suit. My suit would be a raging distraction to them from God. And I would dress differently. If I ever feel like this is a distraction from God, I'll, I'll dress differently. I don't see that happening anytime soon at this church. And you know, if I had not worn my suit jacket, some of you would have had to have said something to somebody. You know you would. And that would have been all you thought about during that service. Where is his jacket? You know it's true. He's on a slippery slope. He'll be in wearing pajamas next Sunday. Don't get distracted with the stuff that we do. Don't get distracted with the format that we have. How many of you have been part of conversations about... How we do things, what we're doing, what we're not doing, what programs this other church has that we don't have, what's wrong with this program, what's wrong with that. How many of you have been a part of those conversations? Now, compare that with how many times have you been a part of a conversation with how glorious is our God? How wonderful is it to worship Him? If it's all over here, there's something wrong. And we see here this beautiful picture of an obedient people coming to God, how he would have them to simple, unadorned worship. The way God desires, with focus on God and the sacrifice, not on the altar itself. That's just a, a means to an end. Because one of two things is going to happen. If you as an individual, and if I as an individual, or if we as a church, allow ourselves to get caught up in shaping the stones, one of two things will happen. One, we will become prideful and arrogant because our stones look amazing. And we'll forget God. Two, we will become stressed and exhausted and burdened, and everything will feel like a burden because our stones aren't shaping up the way we want them to. And we'll forget God. 
And God doesn't want us to fall into either of these two ditches. He doesn't want us to exhaust ourselves chiseling all the time and forget about Him. He wants us to just come to Him. Genuinely and simply. Now let's move on into this passage. So they make their altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Now I know we don't really understand the sacrificial system really well. I've actually thought about doing maybe a, a, a sermon on it or maybe a two-week series just to explain it. Maybe, a lot for my own benefit because I've not always understood it either. Um, I'm not really going to go into it too deep right now. But offerings and sacrifices were a very central part of their worship to God. It was the pre-Jesus way of approaching God. Now Hebrews 10 explains that the sacrificial system, sacrificing animals, that was just a shadow of Christ. Christ was the fulfillment, the ultimate sacrifice. That's why on Sunday mornings you don't look in the bulletin and see sacrifice an ox in the order of worship. Christ is the final sacrifice. But what's interesting, and I won't have time to go deeply into it, but God says over and over through the Bible that He doesn't really even desire offerings and sacrifices. What He really desires is genuine hearts that love Him. That's why the greatest commandment has nothing to do with offerings and sacrifices. Or anything external. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. God wants genuine praise, genuine gratitude, genuine love, not just religious acts. So the Israelites make their offerings and it's a reflection of something much deeper than just the act itself. Because as soon as that deeper level of devotion fades away, the religious acts, they don't just become meaningless, they become detestable to God. They're not just meaningless, they're hated by God. Because it's like a spouse saying, I love you, and bringing the spouse flowers while they're committing adultery. It's not just that those flowers are meaningless, they're detestable. That's what religious acts without true heart devotion is to God. But if you can find it, if you can find genuine, passionate love for God, everything becomes meaningful. And not just meaningful, everything becomes holy. We have to be careful that the frantic busyness of our lives and of the holiday season coming up, that it doesn't leave us just feeling stressed and burdened and vaguely empty inside because that's what will happen if we are not cultivating a genuine heart, love for God in these things. Many of us and many in the world get the externals of Thanksgiving and Christmas right. Like, they do a great job with the externals of the holiday season. But, very few, the way is narrow, very few experience the vibrant, life-giving connection with God through Jesus. 
and his word. And that brings us to the last part of our message here, the last part of our passage. Verse 32. He wrote on there, he wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. They already had a copy of the law of Moses, but he rewrites the whole thing. All Israel, with their elders and officers and their judges, were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. And then afterwards, he read all the words of the law and the blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law. Just picture, you've got these two mountains, the slopes that nearly meet each other. And in the center, right between where the slopes meet, is the Ark of the Covenant, representing God's presence and God's Word, like we talked about a few weeks back. And then, up the slopes of both of these mountains, is the nation of Israel, just sort of halved and put on these slopes. It made kind of a natural auditorium for Joshua to read the entire Law of Moses. I'm pointing this out to point out to you that in in the approach God asked of his people here, his word was central, literally and figuratively. They were literally all gathered around the reading, the writing and reading of God's word. I've heard people say recently, I just wish God would come and sit down with me and speak to me. I just wish he would talk to me as plainly as you're talking to me. God does speak to us. He does. We can hear God's voice if we'll listen. It's right here. It's like a a letter, a love letter from a lover that we will be reunited with soon. It's here. We can hear his voice in this. And one day we will be with him. In the meantime, we have his word. Last verse. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel, but the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living with them. Some of you may be old enough to remember this, not in a bad way. You have wisdom. But some of you remember... President Roosevelt's fireside chats. Some of you remember this? Started in 1933. I read that it attracted more listeners than most of the popular radio shows during the golden age of radio. This was before people arranged their living rooms around the television. They arranged their living rooms around a big radio. They were usually quite large. Trying to figure out what all I'm going to share with you about this. They would be about 15, 40 minute, 45 minutes long. They were written, his speeches were written very carefully. 80% of the words he used were pulled from the thousand most commonly used words in the English language. He wanted everybody to understand. And he scheduled it very carefully. So it would happen sometime after dinner, but before the kids' bedtime. So that the whole family could be gathered around the radio to hear his fireside chat. And it worked really well. He did that through the the Great Depression. 
uh, into World War II. And I feel like this moment with God and His people, it feels to me, when I visualize it, like God's fireside chat with His people. You've got, we read in an earlier verse, you have the elders of Israel, the officers, the judges, the priests, strangers that live with them, natives, the women, the little ones, families, everyone was gathered around God's Word. Gathered to hear God's Fireside chat. I just think it's a beautiful picture of how he had his people approach him. I just want you to visualize that and let's not just gather around a pulpit. Let's gather around God's voice. This week, don't just pull your family and gather around a turkey. Use that as an opportunity to gather around and listen to God's voice. Don't just gather around a Christmas tree. Gather your family around and listen to God's voice through His Word. It's very simple, but we overlook it. Let's just read His Word and listen to it. You fathers and husbands, read God's Word to your families and to your children. Teach them early how to listen to God's voice in His Word. Let's arrange our lives like those families used to arrange their living rooms around God's Word. Let our lives be clearly arranged to focus on listening to His voice. And let our holidays be arranged like that. And I really pray that our little ones will grow up knowing what His voice sounds like so that it's not so foreign to them when they're older and they start to try to get into it. May His voice fill the rooms of our houses as our homes, as we take our Bibles off the shelf and open them and put them in our laps. May His voice fill the sanctuary. May it wrap around us in the weeks to come in this holiday season. Comforting the uncomfortable, easing the distressed, strengthening the weak, correcting the misguided, reassuring the fearful, calling strangers to become His children through Jesus, and calling His children to, be, to come close to Him through Jesus. In unadorned simplicity. And may our approach to God in life and through the holiday seasons, even Thanksgiving this week, resemble the unadorned simplicity of Joshua and the Israelites in this passage today. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for our families, for my family. Lord, let us hear your voice. Clearly, Let us lead our families to your word. Or please protect us. Please teach us how to put our chisel down for a second and focus on you. Let us not be distracted by the elements of our religiousness. Let us not miss you. Let us not... Forget you. And I pray that for myself as an individual and for my family and for all the individuals and families in our church and for our church as a whole. We need your grace here because it's so hard not to fall into that trap. Lord, as we sing our final song, I pray that you would work in our hearts and show us any specific areas of our life that you would have us submit to you in this regard. 
And may this Thanksgiving week be more joyful and more purposeful and more full of peace and faith in you than than it ever has been before. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.